0: You're listening to the Domecast, where news and observer journalists take a look back and forward in North Carolina politics. Welcome to Domecast. I'm Jordan Schrader, hosting this week, and with me is Will Doran and Colin Campbell. Uh, It was a big week uh, for visits from presidential candidates. We had Donald Trump in Greenville. Uh, t- talking about uh, companies uh, taking jobs out of, the United S- out of North Carolina and the United States. Uh, we had uh, Hillary Clinton in Charlotte uh, blasting Trump for being uh, uh, so full of praise for Vladimir Putin. And uh, we had Bill Clinton in Durham uh, talking about a wide range of uh, things, including his uh, wife Hillary Clinton's uh, education policy and immigration policy Uh, but the big news this week was about voting and uh, Colin you had several stories uh, dealing with early voting Uh, in the aftermath of the uh, appeals court's ruling striking down the voter ID law uh, local counties are left to figure out their early voting schedules and you did an analysis of where they came down so what did you find? Yeah, so I um, looked at pretty much
1: every county that had had done an early voting schedule, whether they were uh, contested ones where there was a Democrat on the board that didn't vote along with the two Republican members, or whether they were simply uh, unanimous plans that weren't going to have to get the uh, review from the uh, state board of elections this week uh, when they met. Um, And out of the 100 uh, counties in North Carolina, we found uh, that early voting had been reduced from 2012 in 23 of the counties, Uh, so about a quarter of the counties. Uh, And then Sunday voting is the other big issue here. Uh, Obviously, that's a uh, practice that's that's common, particularly among African-American folks who uh, do Souls to the Polls campaign, where they uh, go out and vote after church. Uh, That that was sort of a key factor in this ruling, um, owing to the fact that there was a part of the voter ID law that got thrown out, in in part because it reduced the amount of Sunday voting that was allowed. Uh, So... After that, uh, the counties that were looking at uh, Sunday voting, nine of the ones that had had it in 2012, uh, were attempting to, to drop Sunday voting. Um, so that sort of set the stage for the State Board of Elections this week, uh, where they restored Sunday voting in um, a, a number of those, about five of them, I think. Um, and then leaving about three counties that used to have uh, Sunday voting in 2012 that no longer have it. Uh, along with uh, a couple of other counties that have added it uh, since 2012. Um, so I think it was somewhere in the uh, neighborhood of, uh, of 20 or 30 counties that uh, will be offering it this year, while others uh, will, will have the polls dark on Sundays, uh, and a number of counties where the state board added it back in. So uh, sort of a mixed bag for the, the people that have been lobbying for the last uh, couple of weeks and, and months to increased the opportunities for early voting. Uh, They had some victories uh, on Thursday when the state board met. They had some losses.
0: What was the meeting like? It was long, mostly, right?
1: Yeah, so that was the, I guess the key feature was by having to decide early voting plans in 33 different counties, which is essentially a third of the state, one county at a time, uh, it was an extremely long meeting. Started at 10 a.m., Uh, I think I got out of there at about 10 or 10.15 p.m. They only took a a half-hour break for lunch. Uh, They were determined, I think, owing to the fact that the the polls are opening not too far down the road in October, uh, that they needed to get it all done in one day. They couldn't uh, go home, rest, and and do the other half of them in a a separate meeting. Uh, And so what this meant was that you had... Uh, the county boards uh, from all these counties come to Raleigh, make their case. The Republicans uh, made the case for their proposal. The Democrat on the board, there's always a two-to-one two, th- two to one split owing to the fact that we have a, a governor who's Republican and, and can appoint two out of three uh, onto these uh, county boards of elections. So they w- would argue their competing plans before the, the state board. Uh, the state board would then, uh, I think in co- some cases, they aim to create a compromise. And that was part of why the meeting so- took so darn long was that uh instead of just necessarily uh, going for the Republican plan in, in every single county, even though the the state board has a Republican majority, uh, a lot of cases they were trying to come up with some sort of uh, compromise through which not everybody got everything they wanted. But what that meant was that they would uh, actually be looking at a map of the uh, polling sites and saying, well, you know, if we've got this one in the Democratic plan, can we add this to the Republican plan? And, and then we were meeting each other halfway. So it was a kind of an excruciating process to, to watch in a lot of ways. But uh The big takeaway for me from that was I kind of went in there, uh, particularly given the Dallas Woodhouse message that uh, encouraging Republicans to go for what he termed party line changes to early voting in in ways that – perhaps might benefit Republicans, uh, and the fact that a lot of uh, county board elections appeared to have done just that and and followed his uh, advice on that matter. I was kind of expecting that we would see a lot of three to two votes on the state board, with the three Republicans banding together uh, to back what uh, their Republican counterparts at the county boards were doing. Uh, That proved not to be the case on a lot of them, Um, and and the swing vote was a guy named James Baker, who uh, I think most people in the state aren't all that familiar with. He's a former uh, Superior Court judge from out in Madison County, almost on the The Tennessee border. Uh, He was appointed, excuse me, to the uh, state board by Governor Pat McCrory uh, about a year or so ago, Um, and he seemed like sort of the uh, the one guy who who seemed to go either way. The other two Republicans typically voted in in favor of Republican plans, but there were uh, a number of occasions, including uh, on the Wake County plan, where he joined with the Democrats uh, to favor a uh, Democrat-backed plan. In those those uh, counties where that ended up getting approved. So that was an interesting thing to watch, and I thought it was kind of interesting because, uh, you know, this whole process has been driven by the courts. Um, a lot of these laws have been overturned by the courts, and it's interesting that the one guy who essentially is almost single-handedly deciding uh, how these, these polls are, are going to be scheduled uh, in, in early voting because of the sort of small nature of that board is, in fact, a retired judge.
0: What was your impression about why they were uh, not splitting three to two in all these uh, cases, and why he uh, decided to break with with his party? And I think in some cases even the whole board uh, found some kind of compromise. What why were you, why why was that? Uh, do you think they were uh, worried about what the court would say?
1: Yeah, if they that didn't was do that? that seemed to be the the big impetus. And there were a number of occasions during the day uh, where the Republican board members actually turned around to uh, there was a, a three attorneys at a table behind them who are all uh, counselors to the the State Board of Elections uh, led by uh, Josh Lawson, who's their their general counsel, and they would ask, you know, if if we approve this particular Republican-sponsored plan, are we going to wind up in trouble uh, with the Fourth Circuit? Uh, Are are they likely to come back in between now and the election and uh, force us to start over or mandate some sort of different early voting hours? Uh, And on the couple of those times, uh, Lawson and he didn't come all the way out to, to say that he favored a, a Democratic plan or anything like that, uh, but he, he told them the, – I think his word was risky, uh, was how he described the uh, Republican-sponsored plan in uh, Mecklenburg County, uh, which uh, was to have a significantly fewer – number of uh, polling sites during the first week of early voting uh, than they'd had four years ago. Uh, I think it was uh, it was only like four or six sites uh, compared with having 20 or 22 uh, in the previous election cycle, and the concern was that uh, a court might look at that and say, you know, you're going to create some serious problems at the polls here if not everyone who wants to vote during that time period is able to vote without an extremely long line. Uh, and in that case, the, the court might uh, have some fodder to, to jump in there. And so that was part of the reason why uh, for Mecklenburg and also for Wake – Uh, The the final decision was to add some voting sites and additional hours, uh, particularly in that first week, um, because the numbers have basically shown that in early voting, you have your highest turnout in the first couple of days, the people who are so eager to vote that the first chance they get, they line up at the polls. And then you have the biggest turnout among the procrastinators in the last couple of days. So the the last two or three days of the early voting period, where people who uh, had been putting it off for the ten or seventeen days or however many it is, uh, finally decide that they want to get to the polls and, and get it done before election day. They're all out there. So uh, the concern is if if you're not fully staffed and and fully operating your, your early voting sites during that time. Uh, you could end up with some some pretty long lines. They're often long lines anyway, but the concern was by cutting, you could have some some pretty big messes. Uh, Wake County was the one where uh, I think one of the board members actually called it the Republican plan a train wreck because the uh, initial approach was for that first week to only have the county board of elections site, which is in downtown Raleigh, and kind of hard to get to unless you want to pay for parking. Uh, one of my voicemails suggested that, that constituted a poll tax, uh, to say that if you wanted to vote during that first week, the only place you could come was a place that didn't have free parking and you have to walk several blocks uh, to find it. Uh, so that was uh, part of the impetus for having more sites during that time period was that at least some of them you could drive thr- drive to and not have to worry about paying for parking or finding parking. Um, we have the luxury of having a... a um, uh, Company sponsored deck here in downtown Raleigh that makes that site easy for us. But for uh, a lot of Wake County residents who, who don't come to downtown Raleigh very often uh, and, and don't want to pay for parking, that's not really a
0: good option for them. Could be a revenue source for us. Yeah, so just to keep that keep keep voting that, parking that right here. Idea. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, so we're, part of this discussion is a debate about whether we should be voting on Sundays. So maybe it's no surprise that uh, God came up. What what did uh, w- what happened there?
1: Yeah, so this was probably my favorite um, back and forth from this long, long day of, of meeting and hearing testimony from uh, various counties, election officials from, from all across the state. This was when they were discussing the schedule for Richmond County. Uh, in, in Richmond County, this was one where the two Republican board members did not want to do Sunday voting. The one Democrat on the board did want to do Sunday voting. Uh, so as the state board was trying to sort out, uh, the, the disagreement in Richmond County, uh, they only had one person from that board of elections in front of them. And it was the Democrat, the two Republicans had for whatever reason, not shown up to defend their plan. Uh, so the state board asked the Democrat to, uh, characterize the county meeting that they'd had, you know, what was the reason, uh, that your two counterparts on the board, uh, did not want to support Sunday voting, and, and the guy, without missing a beat, says, "Well, uh, the two Republicans are Bapt- Southern Baptist preachers, and uh, you know God don't want you to vote on Sunday." And then uh, he went on to point out that uh, you know God don't want you to manage a restaurant on Sunday either. But these these same preachers are, are at those restaurants eating lunch after church every Sunday, uh, which was uh, pretty pretty entertaining uh, commentary on uh, and the, this whole argument over whether Sunday voting is a, a good idea or not.
0: What has been the Republicans' rationale for wanting to uh, reduce, uh, have fewer uh, early voting opportunities in all this mess? I assume that uh, uh, God don't want you to vote on Sundays has not been the rallying cry. Yeah,
1: I mean, it has been described as a day of rest um, and and particularly concerns about poll workers, um, that that a lot of these folks are are working very long hours during the early voting period, uh, and to give them one day off a week uh, they feel like is is, is important. Obviously, the Democrats will say ultimately the reason you might be against Sunday voting is that if you know a lot of African-Americans go to the polls and they happen to vote Democratic, uh, there, there might be a partisan advantage to uh, not having that on the calendar. Uh, but I have heard a, a wide variety of, of reasons uh, on Thursday for uh, the reduction in the hour number of uh, early voting. Uh, the most interesting claim was made by – uh, one of the Republican board members from Mecklenburg county uh, she argued that uh, because during early voting there's not a precinct judge at the location as there would be at each precinct on election days the sort of person who's uh, looking out for for any problems and and ruling on any sort of disputes that may come up uh, at the polls that uh, voter intimidation was uh, much more common during early voting she Described some scenarios in which a an over eager, over enthusiastic campaign volunteer standing outside the polls uh, would would be so pushy with a the voter that they would follow the voter inside the polls, look over their shoulder, and tell them how to vote, uh, which is is interesting. I don't know that I've heard any documented cases of that anywhere, um, and certainly it, it's against the law for campaign volunteers to do any campaigning. Uh, sort of efforts inside the polls. When you go to the polls, there's always that big sign that says no campaigning past this point. And you know that once you get to that sign, all the people trying to hand you stuff have to get off your back.
2: Right. And you would think that would have come out in the news if that had ever happened.
1: Yeah, I would think that would be, uh, you know, front page news. Uh, people one, would report that. Yeah. And one that would be touted by everybody who's concerned about uh, voter fraud issues um, as a sort of broadly cast thing about early voting uh, leading to some sort of voter fraud, although, again, that's another one that's not been all that uh, well-documented how that would work or whether there have actually been any instances where there was uh, fraud at the polls that was specific to early voting and something that couldn't have possibly happened uh, during a typical election day.
0: You yeah, should note, Dallas Woodhouse uh, t- argued that uh, same-day registration, which takes place on during early voting, was more fraught with problems than, uh, than regular voting uh, because uh, there's some numbers that in indicate that, uh, and the Charlotte Observer wrote about this uh, recently, there's some numbers that indicate that uh, the people who use same-day registration, it's harder to verify them. There's more, uh, they're unable to be verified at a higher rate than the people who use the regular registration. Um, at the same time, there's people who uh, say there's other reasons for that. Uh, people move and then they don't get verified. They move in between voting and being verified if there's a lag time. So, uh, it's sort of mixed opinions on that. Um, well, that's probably enough for early voting. Uh, yeah. Battle continues, possibly in court. We shall see. Yeah, yeah. You're writing about that right now. Um, so, uh, Will, you had a you had a fact check this week. Uh, I did dealing with uh, wind power. Uh, so what was the claim that you looked at?
2: Yeah, I uh, I actually learned a lot from this one myself. It was a, it was a pretty fun one to write. Um, but I was looking at a claim from uh, Representative Dwayne Hall from here in Raleigh, a Democrat in the State House, um, who said that North Carolina's coast is possibly the best place in the entire state for offshore wind energy. Um, and I huh, you know, <laughs> like, it's a pretty big country. I uh, I don't know that North Carolina is the best. So I looked it up, and um, there's actually plenty of handy maps and charts and all sorts of things like that out there. Um, and uh, we're actually number five in terms of total power, um, but we're the best on the East Coast um, in terms of total power again. And the federal government has actually been kind of pushing um, the East Coast as the starting point for wind power because – uh, the coastline here is much more shallow than it is on the west coast and uh, it's very basically the deeper the water gets uh, the more risky and more expensive it gets to build these turbines so um, I talked to um, a, uh, uh, an expert professor from the University of Delaware who studies this sort of thing and she said that yeah there's actually a pretty good argument to be made for North Carolina even though it's it doesn't really top any lists of the most wind power or the spots with the highest winds, uh, that basically because we have such a long coastline here and it's so shallow, um, that there's actually ample opportunities. And as it turns out, um, there's actually a spot in Dare County, a little bit Northeast of Kitty Hawk. Um, and you know, I, I'm giving these examples on land, but you know, what I'm talking about, this is probably 40, 50, 60 miles offshore because that's where it's real windy. Um, that the federal government is actually going to put up for auction um next year there's actually th- this didn't get it into the article so listeners you get a little extra That's information right, here yeah. um but there's actually going to be some public hearings on it later this month to see if there's uh any interest in the site from uh you know from the private realm or if you know people in dare county or elsewhere are opposed to it um and if there is interest there's going to be you know Public comment section, and then you know, sometime next year we could see this site auctioned off if people are interested, and uh, wind turbines starting to get built, um, kind of there on the the border with Virginia. Um, so yeah, it uh, one of the most intriguing places in the country, indeed, for uh, for offshore wind turbines, which uh, are kind of the uh, the next the next step in the country's uh, renewable energy search. Okay.
0: So, Representative Hall could uh, say mostly true on this yes, one, right? Yes, mostly true. Mostly true. All right. Well, uh, this week uh, I talked to the candidates for labor commissioner, and uh, we're going to play a little tape from those two, Cherie Berry, the sitting commissioner, and Charles Meeker, the former mayor of Raleigh, who wants to unseat her in the fall. Um, Talk to them a little bit about uh, uh, how the agency is working now, Uh, and you'll hear some tape of uh, Commissioner Berry talking about uh, how injuries and illnesses uh, have fallen. Uh, You'll hear a little bit of uh, Charles Meeker uh, saying the agency hasn't done enough in certain areas uh, to go after uh, employers that are misbehaving. Uh, one thing that we're not going to be able to have time to play in the tape, but was kind of an interesting uh, uh, points that they both touched on. Um, I asked them about um, some labor issues that the Labor Commissioner doesn't have direct control over, but that are still issues of the workforce and labor in North Carolina. So it uh, seems uh, that they would want to weigh in on those. And those are that's minimum wage and paid leave. In um, the pretty divergent uh, positions, Sheree Berry actually uh, said, she said, that the market should determine paid leave and the minimum wage and the wages. Uh, in fact, she doesn't think there should be any minimum wage uh, and uh, neither federal nor state. Uh, and certainly doesn't think that employers should be required to pay to uh, give paid leave that if uh, somebody doesn't like that their employer doesn't give it, they should just you know, go to find another employer. Uh, so she thinks that the the market will take care of both of these. Um, Meeker had a very different uh, uh, position. He thinks that he wasn't he ready to name a specific uh, minimum wage, uh, but he suggested in the $13 to $15 range, so significantly higher, significantly higher than the $7 and change that it is right now uh, at the federal minimum wage and in North Carolina. Uh, and uh, he uh, said that North Carolina should have a, uh, a mandatory paid leave program. Uh, But uh, we'll hear a little more from uh, them about what else they had to say uh, right now. And then we'll uh, be back with Headliner of the Week.
3: My name is Cherie Berry, and I am the Commissioner of Labor currently. I have been in office since I was sworn in in 2001, and I'm running for re-election for my fifth term because I absolutely love the job and the people that I do it with every day
0: and uh, what do you think you've accomplished in your time so far as as labor commissioner
3: how much time do we have <laughs> uh, the most important thing that we have accomplished I believe in the last now 16 years is the fact that we have improved the safety and health of North Carolina's workers whether they are in the private sector or the public sector As employees and uh, we have had the injury and illness rate for our workers in North Carolina on a downward trend for the last 16 years and we're very very pleased that that has happened. When I took office and was sworn in in 2001, the injury and illness rate was at 5.3 per 100 full-time workers. And those numbers are calculated by the Bureau of Labor Statistics, so they're not my numbers. Uh, And we use those as a measurement of how we're doing with the different programs we have in place with the department. So over the last 16 years, that number has been on a downward trend. Uh, It did plateau for several years, uh, but then it didn't go up, it kept going down. And currently, for the last reporting period from the BLS, that number is 2.7 per 100 full-time workers, and that's the lowest it's ever been in the history of the state. And I would like to uh, give all the credit to the employers and employees across the state who have embraced the safety and health programs, not just the minimum requirements, that are required by OSHA laws and standards, but they've gone above and beyond what was required of them, and they have made those numbers happen. Now, zero is the number we're after, so I want to continue in this job because of the record we have had and the downward trend those numbers have been on. I would like to see that continue with the people that we have in place in the Department of Labor who've helped employers and employees make that happen.
0: How does that stack up with what's happened nationally? Because I think there's a trend downward nationally too, is that right?
3: There has been over several years, but our numbers are lower than the national numbers, so we'd like to keep it that way because that represents uh, pain and suffering and loss of income for families, and we just like that downward trend and we want to keep it going.
0: What could you point to that you've done as labor commissioner that would have contributed to that?
3: What we have done over the last 16 years is concentrate on education and training for employers and employees. Um, There have been periods of time when the administration in Washington with Federal OSHA has concentrated more on penalties. And violations. Um, We didn't go that route. We stuck with education and training, which is so very important, and everything we do is geared toward that. Of course, we do compliance when we have to, but it's the education and training and developing those relationships throughout the business community and with the public sector. to develop those relationships so that they see the Department of Labor not as an adversarial regulatory agency that's going to come in and find them out of business for things they maybe didn't know about, things they needed to know but didn't. Uh, I wanted them to see us as their partners working hand-in-hand with them to make North Carolina one of the safest states in the country.
0: Yeah, uh, could you talk about that a little more? Because there, there's sort of a competing philosophy that the regulators shouldn't necessarily be partners with the companies. That that's a conflict of interest. That that the that the uh, regulators should be um, the watchdogs to make sure that the companies um, are doing what they're supposed to do, and that they should be fining these companies or taking them to court if they're um, uh, if they're not doing what they're supposed to do. So.
3: Well, we do find companies when we find violations uh, when they haven't complied. Our main thrust has been more consultative services. That's a, a bureau that we have that will come out to your business, and they leave their citation books at home, and they will walk through your facility, or on your job site with you, hand-in-hand, and point out all the places where you may be out of compliance Mm -hmm. with the OSHA regulations. And the only thing we ask in return for that, and it is a free service, is that you abate those hazards within a reasonable amount of time. And when we do that, it's a voluntary program, so the businesses call us and ask for that service and we try to promote it as much as we can. And the folks that are in that bureau that are coming out to go through your business with you, most of them are former compliance officers. So they, they're all safety professionals, and they're there to help you become in compliance so that when you get that random inspection, knock on the door, and it's NC Osh and you won't have to be worried about that and you can welcome us in with open arms and that's the kind of partnerships we want to develop.
4: My name is Charles Meeker, uh, served as mayor of Raleigh from 2001 to 2011 was on the city council before that. Uh, we had a good run in terms of getting a lot of things done here in the city both with downtown, parks and greenways, sustainability, things like that so it's a good time. Uh, the Commissioner of Labor for a long time It's rumored not to be doing its job, and that was confirmed by uh, two series run, both uh, here in the News Observer as well as the Charlotte Observer, about the department not seeing to it that employees are correctly classified as employees to get benefits, and also not seeing to it that employees get paid when the employers uh, uh, haven't done so. Uh, So it seems like it's a department that needs new leadership, needs to be re-energized, and really do things to make sure that the state laws are enforced.
0: And why labor commissioner? You're people who know you, um, they probably associate you with downtown redevelopment, with uh, greenways and transit. Why, o- why want to take over this department that deals with regulation and, uh, and uh, um, work, work safety in some of these areas?
4: Well, there are a couple of things. One, of course, I work as a lawyer. And this is a regulatory position, and having a lawyer's background is the, is the right one for it. And then secondly, this department just hasn't been active, hasn't been doing its job. And politics isn't just about moving up the political ladder, it's also about doing jobs that need to be done. And we simply need a new commissioner to get the department to be much more active.
0: Commissioner Barrys talked about uh, wanting to focus on training and education and free uh, uh, walkthroughs of a business where you point out problems rather than fines and taking employers to court. Uh, Is that the right approach? She said it's a lot easier
4: to um, get businesses on board if you play it that way. It certainly is the right approach to focus on education and training. The problem we have is that uh, even with the programs we have now, we still have a lot of injuries on the job. Indeed, the most recent year we have the figures, this is the year of 2014, 137 North Carolinians were killed in the workplace. And many more uh, uh, injured and what's happening there is the employees don't have adequate training when they start their work because so many of these injuries happen in the first month or two of an employee's uh, job so i think you know the current programs need to be enhanced particularly in the, in the mid-sized and smaller businesses that don't have big safety programs to be sure that every employee has the training needed before they start work
0: looking back at your decade as mayor what are you proudest of what? Uh, would you point to that uh, um, you uh,
4: you left the, where you left the city better than it was? Well, of course, uh, there are several things, and it wasn't just me. It was a lot of teamwork. Uh, downtown certainly is in a very different place than it was when I took over both in terms of opening Fayetteville Street, the convention center, and all the private investment, over a billion dollars we've had since then. Uh, The parks and greenways, uh, very substantially expanded, particularly in the suburban areas. Same with the uh, water and sewer system. And finally, all the sustainability efforts. Another point I think people sometimes forget is that even though we did spend a lot of money on capital projects and infrastructure, uh, the tax rate uh, when I left Raleigh was actually a penny lower than when I started because of all the private uh, development, all the appreciation value that uh, the city actually was able to lower the tax rate. And people sometimes forget that.
0: It's a weak mayor system. uh, So they have a manager. Uh, In this case, you'd be running an agency, although you probably leave a lot of the day to day to others. Um, does, does that translate, and uh, have you had experience kind of running an
4: organization in the same way that you'd be running the, the labor department? Uh, it's similar in terms of setting policies and being sure the right people are in charge. Uh, certainly the labor commissioner is not out inspecting elevators or in, in the field looking at migrant farmers' work, but you are trying to get the right policies, the right procedures, and right people in place. So that's very similar to being mayor. I think also you got to be practical here. The commissioner of labor is very much depended on and needs to be very close to touch with the General Assembly. Uh, that is, you don't set your own budget. You don't have that much control over the bigger picture. So you need to have good relations there. And that's similar to mayor having good relations with the council, because the mayor only hit one vote on the council, and you've got to really try to get along with those other folks.
0: All right. Well, the last thing I want to ask you about is elevators. Can't let a uh, interview about Labor Commissioner go without that. Um, you want to take your picture off. Uh, the Uh, elevators or take her picture off the elevators and not replace it with your picture.
4: uh, Yes. You know, the main thing the Commission of Labor is known for right now is the picture on the elevator, Uh, but it's not the right symbol. The Department of Labor ought to be honoring workers who are making North Carolina a better place. So what we've said is that should I get elected, uh, we'll put pictures of teachers, firefighters, truck drivers, folks like that who ought to be honored in the elevator and take off the picture of a career politician because the right symbol really is to honor workers, not, not a politician.
0: Uh you know and Commissioner Barry, she says you know we have fun with it you get uh, uh, a lot of reaction people know who you are because of this and so that there's some kind of connection that the public feels I think kids especially and uh, you know what's the harm the the, the the average person certainly doesn't know who most of their state officials are. You're probably lucky if they know who the governor is. Uh, so this sort of adds to their civic education, right? What's you know, What's wrong with having a picture of an you know, official on the elevator?
4: Well, I'm not sure there's anything wrong with it, per se. I just think there's a better use of it. And you certainly can have a connection with a teacher or a firefighter you see on the elevator, just as well as you can a commissioner of labor. And actually, the commissioner of labor you know, has never been on the elevator, hasn't inspected it. So it really isn't quite the right representation. Who is your headliner of the week? Who is your headliner of the week? Who is your headliner of the week? Head, head,
0: head, head, headliner of the week. We're back with Domecast and everybody's favorite segment, Headliner of the Week, where we decide who is the most important or influential uh, person or entity in politics this week, or at least among the uh, ones that win nominations from our panelists here. Um, So why don't we start with Will Doran.
2: Thank you. Um, My nominee is the conservative group Americans for Prosperity. Uh, Most people probably know them as the Koch brothers-backed group that uh, right now has been sending out a lot of mailers, going door-to-door, doing online ads and press releases in the Richard Burr, Deborah Ross race for the Senate. They've been making a lot of claims about Ross's uh, records raising taxes when she was in the state legislature, and um, a lot of uh, a lot of good, specific and high numbers that I want to uh, you know hopefully dive into for Politifact <laughs> coming up here. Um, but uh, they've they've been hitting her pretty hard on some of uh, some of these uh, taxes that they are they are claiming, and I want to see if they are true. Um, Because that is a race that just seems to be getting closer and closer and closer in all these national polls as, uh, you know, as this election marches on. So, uh,
0: Americans for Prosperity. All right. We've seen a lot of big spending, including some from outside groups in that race, uh, the Ross Burr Senate race. Uh, Americans for Prosperity in the hat. For headliner of the week, Uh, Colin Campbell, who's your headliner of the week nominee? Well,
1: I'm going with a guy who most people probably hadn't heard of before this week when I uh, checked my mail and found his name in a public records request response uh, that I had made uh, some time ago. Uh, This is Gary Terry. He is the uh, rhyming named uh, first congressional district chairman for the North Carolina Republican Party, Uh, so oversees a number of county uh, Republican Party organizations up in the northeastern uh, part of the state. He uh, went a step beyond uh, his uh, state-level counterpart, Dallas Woodhouse, in weighing in on early voting. Uh, He wrote to county board members who happened to be of the Republican persuasion, uh, encouraging them uh, not only to uh, cut back on the number of hours offered in early voting and to to limit Sunday voting, as Dallas Woodhouse had suggested, uh, but he encouraged the counties either to not adopt a plan at all, which would default to the minimum, or pick the minimum allowed under law. And the minimum... uh, under his interpretation, was that uh, you only have the uh, main site and the county seat, one one site for the entire county, open during business hours during the weekdays and then uh, for a few hours on the Saturday morning right before the election, um, which is uh, something that a lot of smaller counties do anyway just because they don't have the population or the resources to, to have more than one site. But he was encouraging it in a number of counties. Uh, one of them appears to have followed suit um at least uh, is Linnor County that uh, uh, eventually added more hours, but uh, under the original Republican plan had had been going with the bare minimum, uh, and a number of others had had opted for that that bare minimum approach. Uh, perhaps in response to, uh, to Mr. Terry's missive, but he was fairly open about uh, not doing anything with early voting that could in any way be beneficial to uh, Democratic Party voters. Uh, so for, uh, for having that fairly uh, incendiary uh, effort in lobbying for early voting, I'm going with uh, Mr. Gary Terry.
0: All right. Well uh as much as i'd like to have it uh, be mispronounced as the uh cherry berry gary terry podcast uh <laughs> featuring harry Carey. yeah
2: we should get him on as a guest yeah <laughs> uh,
0: he could be the headline of the week i feel like uh uh gary terry was uh not all that successful right no <laughs>
1: um very few counties now are doing that minimum number thing um most of the ones that went before the state board, the state board was encouraging them to get uh, at least somewhat above that uh, minimum threshold.
0: Yeah. That could uh, elicit a court smackdown, I guess, if uh, if they go with the, the bare minimum of what they could do. Um, well, at any rate, I think, uh, well, it remains to be seen if Americans for Prosperity will be successful. That uh, that group uh, uh, is uh, um, spending heavily on the Ross Burr campaign and will Uh, Well, it looks like a tight one, so we'll see uh, who prevails there. Um, But I think uh, because they still have a a shot, I'll make Americans for Prosperity the headliner of the week. Uh, So that's it for Domecast. Uh, For Colin Campbell and Will Doran, I'm Jordan Schrader. Join us next week for Domecast.